Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Talking to Change Motivational Interviewing Podcast with myself, Sebastian Kaplan from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and joined, as always, by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry in Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Seb. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's a bit early on my end here. Uh, you know, got us rolling at 7.30 a.m., so uh, luckily I'm a bit of a morning person, so I think I'll make it. Fantastic. Appreciate yeah. the effort, Mom. Thanks. Sure. Of course. Of course. Um, so we, as always, we're excited for today's episode and, and to introduce our guest. But first, uh, kick us off with some uh, reminders about social media and other ways people can listen and contact us. Yeah, thanks, Seb. And I really appreciate everybody who's come on board with over 130 followers now on our Twitter account, at Change Talking, and our Facebook page, Talking to Change. And for questions or feedback, you can contact us using an email, podcast at glennhines.com. Great. Uh, okay, so we'll get us started here. So introducing our uh, guest today with uh, for what we hope to be interesting and, and actually a bit of a different conversation since our past episodes have focused on, uh, on motivational interviewing, of course, but as applied largely in healthcare settings and addiction settings. So this will be a bit of a different, uh, a different conversation. So today we have Dr. Jeff Brecken, who is the head of research in the Academy of Sport and Physical Activity at Sheffield Hallam University. He is a chartered sport and exercise psychologist and a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, as well as the British Psychological Association. Jeff was trained in motivational interviewing in 1996 and then as an MI trainer by Miller and Rolnick themselves uh, in the year 2000 in Quebec. He has provided MI training to over 200 organizations across the UK, Europe and North America and delivered the International MI Training New Trainers Program, both in Barcelona in 2009 and Krakow in 2013. Jeff has published over 40 peer-reviewed papers and, pre and presented internationally on the role of MI in sport, exercise, and health, exploring the role of MI and integrative therapies, as well as the impact of MI training on workforce development programs. He is the co-author with uh, Steve Rolnick, Jonathan Fader, and Terry Moyers on an upcoming Guilford text entitled Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best, Motivational Interviewing in Sports, due out in November 2019. And perhaps most importantly, he has three Labradors that keep him quite busy uh, each and every day. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. We're happy to have you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, really looking forward to, to talking with you. Yeah. Well, so... As, uh, as we like to do sometimes, we, we wanted to just get a bit of your background um, just to kind of set the stage with the work that you do and also 
uh, you know, your specific work as it relates to our podcast on the application of MI in sport. So uh, just give us a, a bit of a taste of what, what life has been like for you, Jeff, and where this all started for you. Yeah, I will. It's, it's been quite a, well, very interesting road. Um, I guess professionally, I started back in 1993 uh, as a coronary heart disease specialist, focusing very much on, on physical activity, behavior change, diet change. Uh, so there, there was some behavior change cessation, smoking alcohol in there, but it was primarily behavior adoption. Uh, that followed the, the training that I had at at university as a sport and exercise psychologist. Um, through the mid-90s, I set up um, two or three, what, what we call in the UK, GP referral schemes, uh, physical activity referral, where patients with hypokinetic disease, or coronary heart disease, diabetes, obesity conditions, would be referred by primary care physicians, if you like, to specialists who would work with them to promote lifestyle change uh, and, and just really to have them take lead on, on their own behavior change. Um, and yet, I think my, in looking back to that period, uh, that was the point at which I really began to run into trouble because I was working with patients and clients who um, I thought because they were there, they were ready for change, there was clearly a need for change. Uh, and I pretty much fell into every trap you could describe and that, that we've seen in all the texts in, in MI. Um, I was relying on my enthusiasm. I was a, a sport player, if you like, I, you know, very keen in cricket and volleyball and soccer and, and was playing a uh, number of sports at a reasonable level, but I was probably a failed uh, uh, sports person in all of them. But I, I just relied on my enthusiasm to drag those patients to where I thought they should be. Um, and I, I just, I think I was relieved that I got a sense and I remember when it was, it was 1997, uh, and I, I read a book uh, by, I think, Paula Hunt and Melvin Hilston uh, on changing eating and exercise behaviour. Um, sorry, 96, I read that. And there was a couple of things that jumped out to me because I, I was scrabbling around trying to find a resource or help or support to try and, and work better with these patients because I knew it, what I was doing just wasn't working. Um, in that book, there was two, three things that, that still resonate with me. It was about using the patient as the resource, and it was about being willing to change your approach based on how ready for change those patients are. Uh, and that, that really conflicted the systems and the, the programs that I was involved in the time. And from then, that's when I started. I, I, did, I sought more information out. Uh, in that regard. Uh, I did my first training, as you mentioned, in 96. And it just began to show me a, a different way of working with clients. You know, I, I still fell into many of the traps, but it, it just began to challenge what I did. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I still feel challenged when I work with patients and clients, but I think I, I have a better sense of, of what works and what doesn't work. And really, I'd, I'd build that into my professional world. I still had a lot of work I was doing around elite sport, professional sport, but from really the, the late 90s into the 2000s, that was more around supporting the training of sport and exercise psychologists in the UK. So I delivered a number of workshops from 2000 onwards when I did my own TNT. Um, and this was really early days in terms of sport and MI. Um, and it was something very new. I, I don't know how ready 
that world was, you know, how ready they were for something like MI uh, for a number of reasons that I think we'll talk about uh, over the time we've got. Um, but it just began to be clear to me that, that there is a real opportunity here to look at both sport and exercise, physical activity domains in what to me had been traditionally very much an addictions approach. Um, you know, we've seen the emergence of, of drug and alcohol, uh, mental health, even the probation prison service use. So there was a very small number of us that were working in this domain of sport, exercise, physical activity. Um, and what has been great in, in the last few years is, is we're really seeing a, a growth in the opportunities for it and also the acceptance in the professional world and, and the services in sport and exercise that actually uh, this has a lot of value. You know, this can offer a lot for the, the therapeutic approach, the alliance building, and just beginning to help deliver the intervention better. Uh, and I, I think that's been the golden thread over the 20 or so years I've been learning this approach is there are common threads irrespective of the context. What I, I keep seeing is, is there is a, a real common set of principles. Um, and I think the, the work that um, myself and, and colleagues and you know, some of my own PhD students have been involved with, um, it resonates, you know, it resonates across a number of different settings. Um, uh, and I think really what we've got to now is um, understanding better how we need to adapt the approach. So I've, I've had the, the real pleasure of, of working with colleagues such as Paul Earnshaw, uh, Rory Allert, Sylvie Nar King in, in both training and uh, publishing. And whether it be working with adolescents, young people, whether it's elite sports people, whether it's colleagues in a, in a work environment, in a leadership and organisation, um, I think there are some, some real common principles. And I, I always cite with groups that I work with and train, um, the Miller and Rose 2009 paper um, toward a theory of MI. And, and in that book, uh, sorry, in that paper, I always remember the term, you know, if you've got empathy and you've got engagement, anything else can happen. You know, and I think that's become my moniker, if you like, and, and a, a go-to statement that I use pretty much every time I work with groups and train MI. Quite a lot across what you've said there, Jeff. First of all, was your own openness to your your own practice, that sensitivity to your own impact on other people, that the desire to be helpful was very clear in you and presented itself in your own enthusiasm. But you very quickly recognised that your enthusiasm to be helpful wasn't necessarily being experienced as as help by other people, and you noticed the the discrepancy in that place, and were very keen to find out why your enthusiasm wasn't being translated to the other person, and you went searching. Yeah, I, I think that if I'm honest, um, I, I, I would probably say that that was because it wasn't working. It, right. it wasn't because it, it wasn't satisfying my moral approach, my philosophical standpoint. Mm. The rest, I think, early on. Um, it was because I just wasn't being effective. You know, right. I was having patients not turning up again and, and not following mm. the, you know, the fantastically developed interventions we, we were rolling out with them. So it, it came very much early on from a, a point of, or a place of frustration. Uh, you know, I've, I've very quickly learned that actually this, this needs to take uh, a very different turn. And the client, the person in front of you, is the resource and, and it became easier. You know, I'll, mm. I'll be honest, the paradox is that the less I tried to do, the easier it was because 
actually taking a different approach, a different mindset, and trusting that the patient has resource, they have experience, they have history, and, and have a lot of potential for change. Mm. The softer areas, I guess, of, of MI, you know, more the relational spirit aspect, um, became more and more influential in, in my own practice. Yeah, mm. and, and what struck me was is that you had a choice there when it wasn't working. There was, You were looking for someone to take responsibility for why it wasn't working. What was interesting was you recognised there were things that you could be doing differently, that it wasn't because you were res- with resistant, difficult, challenging clients. It was work recognising there's something I'm doing that's not working, and you began to explore your practice rather than the difficulties with the with the client. And I think that's something that's that comes across in many of the conversations we've been having in the podcast is that the recognition that this individual's being themselves. If it's not working, there's, it's probably to do with something I'm doing. And it took courage in your part to begin to explore what it was you were doing, and then you the answer came to you, which was the client's the resource change what you're doing and, and see what happens and i think there's i think that's a, a really important point glenn because for me um i, I didn't have a role model you know i, I didn't have, have uh, a mentor and a coach you know, i was working very much in isolation uh, and that, that is still a concern for me when we look at sport and, and exercise physical activity professionals um they don't have access to mentors and coaching and, and a guide to enhance their work, which is different to clinical psychology. You know, it's different to forensic psychology and a lot of other domains. So I think we there is a real need to enhance the quality of the, the training uh, and the mentorship in, you know, practitioners working in, in those areas um, because they, they are quite often um, working in isolation. They don't get the chance to uh, really be positively contaminated by, by other practitioners. Uh, and when I look at it as a, a learner in training MI, that, that's been the, the huge value for me is, is being engaged with the organisation, you know, I mint and at the forums because it gave me even just a few days a year where I can just touch base with people of a like mind that are really working, you know, really well, I think, you know, and, and really thoroughly um, with a, a right mindset. Uh, and I learned every time from observing those kind of trainers and practitioners. Uh, then I would go back for the other 300 plus days a year into you know, the normal environment. So at least I had a few days where I could press reset and, and just keep challenging what I do with a, you know, a good mindset. Right. It, you said something just a moment ago that struck me that you didn't have any models. And as far as models in, in, demonstrating how you might use the client as the resource, for instance, like you said. And actually, I, I would imagine, maybe this is a bit of an assumption, but as an athlete uh, yourself or growing up playing sports of different kinds, perhaps you may have had models that did the opposite. Uh, I imagine in, in most sporting contexts, uh, the, the resource of at least of knowledge and of what to do are the coaches. And, you know, like traditional healthcare settings or addiction settings, rather top down and and the coach is there to tell the athlete what to do and how to do this better and how to do that better and how to change. And uh, so perhaps you had models to plenty of models that showed you how not to use the client as a resource. So I'm 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 curious to hear about how MI began to link up with maybe even your own 
past experience, even if it wasn't formally MI, but maybe there was something that you were learning about MI that led you to reflect back on your experience as an athlete yourself. But then as, as you started to really integrate it into the work that you were doing with elite athletes in your day-to-day profession. I think the, it's, it's a very challenging question you ask, Seth, because I think most people that get into sports um, do so because they've had a role model, you know, be it a parent, be it a colleague, be it a friend, you know, be it a sports teacher at, at college, university, school. Um, I think what, what we see still too often um, is there is a real focus on fixing athlete problems, you know, from both a sports psychology and a coaching perspective. Um, you know, and quite often that's at the expense of identifying, of reinforcing the athlete's strengths. Um, and, and there is risk there of appearing critical, of, of disrespectful, of, of really pulling apart and um, dissecting everything about the performance and the, the skill and the technique. I think perhaps at risk of ignoring the athlete as a person. So one thing I you know, saw growing up is there was great coaches, there were less good coaches. Um, I was never really able to, to put my, my finger on what, and I think it, it became, and it perhaps still is, too much down to chance in terms of who those good coaches are. Um, the, the culture of professional sport, be it Olympic or team sports in the professional domain, there is still a challenge in terms of the, the culture that is created because of um, the, the finances involved, the media coverage of sport. You know, this is, it's a pretty brutal environment that we're challenging young people to, to try and make a career in. Uh, you know, we know in baseball, we know in basketball, we know in, in soccer, um, certainly in the UK, that the number of those academy and, and young players that make it out of high school and, and out of academies into getting a, a career, it, you know, it's, it's minute. It's 2 3%. So that means there is well over 90% who are going to fail. Mm. And, and that's tough. You know, there aren't many careers where we are setting people up to have such low um, chances of success. Um, and there's various pressures, you know, the, the pushy parent syndrome and, and various other uh, external pressures. But it's, it's a pretty brutal world. And there is a lot of work needed to create a more positive culture, a more positive environment for young people, because what we are seeing is, is an instance, perhaps it's because we're more aware of it now than we have been, but we're seeing high instance of uh, low mental health, low mood, uh, maladaptive coaching, alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, gambling, and, and ultimately, in, in too many cases, suicide. So I think a real opportunity here to enhance perhaps the culture, to be even more aware of the individual rather than the athlete, and to help that create transition so that as people transition out of elite sport, either by expected or unexpected means, um, that we help create a culture that prepares our athletes better for that. Mm. Um, and, and have them, again, we've used the term already, but have them become more autonomous, more independent, more resilient, if you like, uh, by trusting them more early on, uh, rather than just, just being a, you know, uh, something that can be used and, and thrown out at the end. Uh, but that, that's going to require a you know, couple of generations of, of different support structures, I think. It's really interesting just how much of a crossover there is between what you're describing in the world of sport and uh, and sports ecology and, and what I understand from a health and social care perspective. In particular, it's around 
the idea of what outcomes are and it's the result. Right. So in sport, right. it's about the performance. It's the, it's the team's result rather than the individual's experience of it. And um, and we're seeing that now more in health and social care. When, in, in my trainings, very often people are saying, look, people, the, what the organisation is more interested now in is what's on paper rather than what's happened to me as a practitioner or more particularly what's happened to my, my patient or client. And it sounds like what's happening from when you're describing sports psychology, that's you're taking a much more holistic approach, which is, yeah, we recognise that more than 90% of everybody we're going to meet is not going to become an elite athlete, which mm. means we have to help people become the best version of themselves, which whatever that is, and help them to to perform there without the expectation that you're only successful if you're playing in the Premier Division. Sure. Uh, and it sounds like that's part of what you're describing is the shift that's taking place in sports psychology that, that yourself and colleagues are leading that transition within the thinking of sports psychology that, you know, there's there's a lot more to this person than the goals they score or the, the runs they make in, on, the, on the pitch. Yeah, and, and there is, and at this point, I think it, it's worth stressing, you know, some of the great work that, that Steve Rolnick's involved in and, and um, colleagues and, and PhD students of mine, such as Rory Mack, who have done some great work in terms of just identifying, you know, what is it we can help the coaches the the strength and conditioning the, the sports physios the uh, the managers the agents you know what what is it we can support them with um and what what again is that golden thread for certainly conversations rory and i've had is that there seems to be too much of a focus toward skills building psychological skills therapy if you like or techniques such as mental rehearsal visualization relaxation coping under pressure all those those traditional techniques, not enough focus on the therapeutic lines, mm. um, and even I would say when when you look at the integration of things like rational emotive behaviour therapy, uh, acceptance commitment therapy, solution focused therapy, cognitive behaviour therapy, the question I would ask is is where's the therapy bit? Mm. You know, we're seeing lots of CB, CF, ACT rather than the ACT. What we're not seeing is very much therapy, right. um, because I think there is a skill in that. There is counselling and, and therapeutic line skills required to, to build that relationship. Um, and it hasn't been a cornerstone sufficiently in, in training our sport and exercise psychologists to date, certainly in the UK. Um, but that's changing. You know, I know the English Institute of Sport done a lot of work in the last couple of years around mental health first aid, around understanding case formulation, uh, and and just appreciating more about the whole person, not not just the athlete and the performer. Um, so that that is positive, and and there is a I think we're pushing now on an open door to introduce techniques like MI. I think the challenge that we have with that is to ensure that if we are going to roll this out into elite sport uh, across a number of different contexts. Then we need to make sure it's done as well as possible, uh, because there are early papers that that we came across in the, the late nineties weren't using MI as, as I think most of us uh, would recognise. You know, the, a bit cherry picking of some of the technical aspects, a focus on uh, scaling tools, scaling rulers, open questions only, without that that depth of uh, understanding and, and empathy and collaboration and, and the spirit of the approach. You know, we, we saw that reported very, very little. 
Um, so I think as, as we move into this brave new world of applying it in sport, what, what I guess we've tried to do and others is say, look, if we're going to try and, and assess its efficacy in this domain, let's just try and do it as well as we can. Mm. You know, let's try and make sure that we have confidence in the approach being delivered as intended. Then we can see where it works and where it doesn't work and where we can amend it. So a concern that you experienced in, in just in being in the world of, of sports psychology is a lot of people ready to adopt a particular framework, cognitive behavioral acceptance and commitment, uh, and then with, with less attention perhaps paid towards the therapeutic element or what actually makes these concepts therapeutic with another human being. Uh, as well as some of the literature that you referenced there. I would imagine other people, and, and maybe if we reflect on our experiences working in other settings, that there's some parallels that we might find or people that are really eager to apply a manual, for instance, for anxiety and maybe leaving out the empathy and engagement aspects of it. And, and so there may be some parallels in other settings. I, I was wondering about the sport setting that you find yourself in every day? You know, what, what are some of the unique challenges that you see, or, or, or maybe one of the, some of the aspects of the culture of, of elite sport that makes it more of a challenge or, or, or maybe not quite as an obvious fit to be therapeutic in the way that you're describing? It's, I think it's, it's a real challenge set because the, uh, sports psychologists that I work with, um, are under pressure to achieve success. Um, there, there isn't quite often time to build an infrastructure and, and to work and build that, that relationship. Quite often, a lot of our sports psychs um, report the, the firefighting element. You know, they might have a, a, a performer, you know, a 100 meter sprinter who is about to go out and perform the biggest race of their life, and, and they might be vomiting 20 minutes before the race. You know, and the coach will say, right, get them fixed, you know, get their head right. You know, it's, it, it's as, as literal as that in terms of their challenges. Um, where we're seeing probably most opportunity for this approach is, is in this culture change where it's, it's across the piece. You know, it's not just at the event the night before, an hour before. It's about creating those positive relationships. And a lot of our sports psychs, and this, this goes across the world as well, their role is different now. You know, they do have more of a pastoral role. They are working with teams and support teams, not just the athlete. So I think there is a greater appreciation of, of the complex role of the psychologist um, so that they don't just get pigeonholed to having that athlete perform as well as they can. Well, you know, they'll be doing as much work with the parents, with the coach, with the, again, the physio. Um, because we know aspects such as the psychology of sports injury are becoming better and better recognised. Uh, and also being a conduit for referral for those athletes for more clinical support, you know, so it could be disordered eating. You know, we, we see, again, still um, significant levels of disordered eating in athletes in um, aesthetic sports, in weight category sports, you know, wrestling, boxing, judo, uh, martial arts. But the aesthetic sports like gymnastics, even, you know, it, it could be a bit left field here, but there is even a lot of work now emerging in, in horse racing. You know, that one of the highest risk groups are elite jockeys because you've got the perfect storm of, um, you know, a, a wanton animal jumping over a, a fence. 
the risk of them falling off and them eating so few calories and spending over an hour a day in a sauna to lose weight. You know, it, it's one of the most high-risk disordered eating sport groups that just go under the radar, you know. So mm. working with but if they don't have low weight, they don't get the ride and they don't have a career, you know. So it's, it's, it's that brutal for areas like that. So the psychology of this is not just working with that jockey, but also the agents and, and the, uh, the, the horse owners, you know, to work more collaboratively. And, and that, I think, is another opportunity for MI. You know, you're, you're looking... You know, some great, that, the great text that came out in the training that followed from um, Wagner and Ingersoll, you know, Chris and Karen in terms of the group MI. Well, some really good opportunities to reflect that group MI work with, in the sport context. So, uh, again, there's a, a range of opportunities for applying it in, in fairly unusual contexts. So again, it, it, it's something that you mentioned earlier, and it, it, it seems to be in round what you're saying as well around that management enhancement of the environment of the of the sports person. But, but within that, it's the systemic aspect of it is, and the, and more particularly the systemic readiness, both to receive on one hand the motivational interview as an approach, and the 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 ability and willingness to become more empathic and more therapeutic in commas, in in their roles with people but also just supporting the system uh, and its readiness for change, whatever that happens to be, whether it's the families, the practitioners, or even the sports. So I imagine that the work that's going to be necessary in relation to the jockeys is as well or not the sport is ready to take us on board or open open their eyes and open their mind to the possibility that getting guys to raise resources is actually putting some of their health in real danger. Hmm. And, and you know, quite often you, you'll be pushing on a, a closed door in that regard because, you know, we, we know the, uh, the significant injury risk from American football. We're seeing the, you know, the number of athletes now who are questioning, is, is this good for me in terms of long-term brain damage? You know, and, and professional rugby in the UK and Europe and, and around the world, some hemisphere teams where players are... Um, just, just really beginning to think about the, the unknown long-term damage of brain injury. But if you ask most retired rugby players, soccer players, uh, would you do the same if you had your time again, even though you've got long-term injuries? You know, I don't hear many of them say, no, I'd, I wouldn't have done it. Hmm. You know, it, it's, it's the, uh, the then and now is, is very, very uh, common for them to, to take the same approach. I think the... The challenge we have in terms of the systems is it's going to be very, very slow to change. Mm. Um, and we have it's chipping away. It's, you know, again, Steve is, is working closely with groups like the Professional Cricketers Association um, in the UK, working with retired cricketers and, again, at high risk of, of uh, long-term mental ill health. And, and he's doing a lot of work around the culture change, you know, and, and working with those groups to provide support. Paula Halloran. A colleague that we've done some work with in, in Melbourne, in Australia, uh, was pivotal for um, an Australian football league, AFL professional Aussie rules football team, looking at, at mental health interventions for them uh, and beginning to use what, what Paul described as mateship so that you can start to have the conversation with that, that guy that you share the changing room with and to try and break down the stigma and be willing to understand how to start those conversations for mental health. You know, when you see it in your colleague and your mate, as he describes it, you know, how do you start that conversation? 
So we're, we're looking at how can we use MI as, as a platform, both face-to-face and digital, to start to increase those conversations that people have, have always shied away from. Uh, and that's, that is beginning to help, I think, change cultures. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned those, the examples of the mateship, is that what you call it? Yeah, very oh, awesome term. Yeah. yeah, right. But uh, some similar things in, in U.S. sports, basketball, for example, um, the last couple of years, two really well-known, well-regarded players, uh, Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan, had very public, um, you know, uh, public expressions of, of their own mental health struggles, and uh, it, it generated a lot of interest and, and I think some really sort of uh, compassionate reflection on, on the state of sports and, and the pressures of athletes. And I certainly wouldn't say in a, a wide scale adoption sense, but but really beginning to kind of realize actually these people that we see do amazing, incredible things on television aren't superheroes or, or robots. They're human beings that struggle with some of the same things that anyone else might struggle with. And uh, so that culture change uh, is is certainly slow going, but but we're certainly seeing it some here in the in the US. I think the the, the timing is interesting Seb. I think there there is a greater acceptance of the need for change and helping to have better conversations, more helpful conversations with athletes and the systems. You know, even back back in the late eighties there was a, a classic sports psychology paper by um, around gaining entry. So, you know, even 20, 30 years ago, we, we knew that gaining entry, building alliance, building that therapeutic connection was important. I guess what, what hasn't been there and hasn't been clearly reported is the how to do that. And there's always been that disconnect between the what and the how. What encourages us now, I think, in terms of MI in sport is that we've got MI, perhaps, and Paul Earnshaw, Rory Allett have talked about this, this MI trellis, upon which you can grow other interventions. So if it's CBT or ACT or uh, REBT or uh, imagery or you know, other PST interventions, MI can be your vehicle for delivering that intervention. And, and I get the sense also that MI is, is more open as a world now to, to being a vehicle for delivering that. And, and there is so much more research. You know, uh, Sylvie, in a recent book, looking at... Uh, MI and CBT, you know, and Avram and Westra, you know, a number of years back, you know, so that there's been that understanding of the integration opportunity for a while. We're seeing that the clear opportunity for that in sport um, to really help that that culture grow. Mm. And real, real quick, Jeff, you mentioned the gaining entry paper, and it seemed like it cut out just as you mentioned who the author Sorry. was. Yeah, so Ken Revisa, um, and the so his his so R I V I Z Z A. It was a classic paper. So sorry, 1998. That that paper came out. Um, and funny enough, I'm, I'm just reviewing a, an update from his team uh, this week, and and they're just reviewing. You know, where are we? Sort of 20 odd years on. Where are we from from that classic paper? And and to be honest, when I when I went back and read that paper again. Um, I think we're talking about the same things. We're talking about, you know, what are the barriers to good communication? You know, how do we gain entry? What is your consultant's role in that communication? And again, going back to what we talked about earlier, I don't think that's massively different if you're working in drug and alcohol services. 
you know, the, these are the common themes. I think Glenn made that point. You know, the, there is a lot of commonality there with a lot of the work that a lot of us do in, in MI contexts. Mm. Well, in some ways, it also sounds like that, that that notion of the motivation interviewing as a vehicle to practice other interventions is in many ways mirrors what you're describing, which is as a sports psychologist, we're not just helping performance, but we're helping well-being. And when we're, when we're talking to people, we're inviting them to take everything into account so that the team works as well together or, or, or the individual themselves, all the different aspects of themselves are integrated in a way that they're performing to their best at every in every aspect. And mm. in some ways, the, the, the invitation for us then as practitioners is to recognize it, it, it's not helpful for us to be precious about being MA practitioners because CBT is really good too and ACT's good too. And if, if, you haven't, if you're very good at MA, well, fantastic. And there's things that CBT can teach you that can help you to grow as a practitioner. But as a, as a collective, as a system together, if we're working towards a shared goal, then we're working together rather than against each other. And I think that's potentially one of the challenges yeah. that you're identifying. I agree wholeheartedly. I think there is a um, an open willingness now to accept uh, where am I coming and perhaps can't be as useful. Mm. Um, you know, that it isn't a panacea. Uh, I, know, I know I've heard Bill say that for a number of years. You know, this isn't a magic wand. For me, I, I, I think I've grown and, and feel comfortable enough with MI now to um, be open to the fact that in, in that action orientation phase, you know, the action planning, I'm probably using more CB stroke CBT as I am I, as I am MI. So it might be underpinned with MI, my delivery method, because we know things can go wrong in the action planning phase. Mm. But I'm also beginning to talk so much more and write so much more about the fact that we need maintenance you know we need relapse prevention built into the action planning and i don't know whether the the four stages are or rather the four processes of mi talk enough about the maintenance and relapse prevention um but that's certainly what we need to talk more about because especially with athletes we know that relapse is inevitable you know it's a normal part of change um so i think mi has has some significant opportunities to blend clearly i guess uh, and i don't want to go off on a tangent but i guess the challenge for mi is as we integrate with other therapies we need to understand at what point are we integrating at what point are we moving to another therapy and why because if we're going to help practitioners learn these approaches and and when they might integrate i think they need to be comfortable in in being able to to switch or to blend Mm. effectively rather than just putting it all in pot and, and seeing what comes out the other end. Right. Yeah. The the switching back and forth, the am I doing MI now? Am I doing CBT now? And how do I know? And 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 maybe for some it's it's avert just sort of that trellis idea of the I am doing CBT from an MI foundation. And mm. that in and of itself might be its own version of CBT that would contrast with someone who is doing it from some other kind of foundation, I suppose. What, what we've done is, is we've, a couple of papers we've, we've put out recently in the last few years, again, that, that Rory has, has led the way on, Rory Mack, um, is, is just being a lot clearer with, with that sport world, you know, around what is a, a PST dominant approach, you know, where, where are we using a CB dominant approach, um, and where might we utilise MI to, to really help deliver that, that message. 
mm-hmm. um, and, and to upskill you know practitioners who who haven't necessarily had as much counselling exposure. Mm-hmm. And I think MI is a you know a psychotherapeutic approach or a talking therapy or um, certainly a way of delivering an intervention. It, it can be very powerful and useful for them. Jeff, I imagine some of our listeners may be uh, may be more or less comfortable with how MI would fit in a healthcare setting or an addiction setting, working on, mm. uh, you know, cutting back on smoking or drinking or, or some other kind of behavior. And, and the concept of ambivalence that comes up around, around those kinds of behavior changes, mm. uh, or perhaps not just behavior change, but change in general, you know, uh, part, part of a person may feel strongly that cutting back on their smoking is, is the right thing to do. And yet there's a part of them that may not be ready or may not want to do that. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the context of MI in sport and where the concept of ambivalence might show up for someone who is trying to perform at, at yet a higher level than they have before, or, or, or maybe the concept of change shock, another thing that we've talked about in past episodes, how is that similar or perhaps different in your world than in the world of a primary care physician or a psychologist? It's, yeah, it's a really, it's an interesting question. It's a challenging question because I I think ambivalence and I I remember listening to a fantastic talk by um, Tim Mappadaka in Berlin. And and that, again, that hit home for me because what, what Tim talked about at that point was Actually, ambivalence is normal. You know, anytime you're thinking about a significant change, ambivalence is going to be prevalent. So as a practitioner, don't be scared of it. You know, don't try and stamp it out. Don't drag the, the individual, in this case an athlete, away from that ambivalence. You'll know, be willing to have the conversation about it. And when we're working with athletes, when we're working with the sports psychologists that will work with those athletes, that's, that's quite illuminating for them. It takes the pressure off them for, for them to hear that actually ambivalence and reluctance for change is a normal function of the change process. Uh, and that taking pressure off, and again, when it's communicated to the athlete, is, is really positive. Um, and I think athletes, what, what we presume sometimes is that because the athlete has a contract, because they're paid, because they're contracted to, to actually perform, they will do whatever they need to do for change. But what we forget, these human beings that just happen to have a career in sport, um, are quite often reluctant to change what has worked previously for them. So they become um, addicted to what they do. You know, mm. they, they formed significant habits, be them healthy or otherwise. So having them change technique, having a golfer change his or her hand shape, um, you know, having a, a wrestler or a boxer change diet or change S&C coach is really quite a traumatic event for them. Um, you know, akin to someone trying to, to give up a habit, you know, mm. and a, you know, some form of, of uh, cigarette smoking, alcohol or substance. So I think we are going through similar processes. Um, there is clearly an outcome driven approach with athletes where what, whatever we talk about has to have a positive so what and they have to see gains very quickly. And if they don't, then they are likely to not stick and adhere to that, that change process. So I guess that is unique in sports is that, again, ambivalence is common. It's a normal function of change, but we have to see quick results with these athletes and those that are funding us as psychologists to work with them. You know, we haven't got a year. You know, we we haven't got that three to five year period for relapse, come back, relapse, come back. You know, the the cycle, the stages of change. 
you need to see quicker results sooner. But I think communicating that better to the athlete and and communicating it's okay to be ambivalent and be fearful of the change process can, can sometimes just take the pressure off them. Mm. You know, and you can see them be more willing to, to move forward having had that, that conversation. So in some ways, the, the coach has to be at, at a, a comfortable place to tolerate the, the sportsman's ambivalence yeah, for them to get absolutely. used to themselves. So again, it's back to that relationship that uh, and the role of the of the coach, which is very often to be just just ahead or have an awareness of what the individual is experiencing, which is again similar to what we would be experiencing in health and social care. That, that we recognise yeah. the challenges of the people, and it, it, in some ways, you know, this person knows they're going to die. Why don't they just stop smoking? This person's making a million pounds a week. Why don't they just bloody get on with being a good footballer? Exactly. And exactly. it's it's it, it if we look at it from that perspective, it doesn't make sense, but. Mm. If we look at it properly, it does make sense, and by make help understand why it makes sense, then we're in a better position to influence how they might go about doing it differently to achieve that outcome for themselves. That's the key. What you've said is, you know, that this is a whole systems approach. Mm. You know, we, we can work as much as we like with the individual, but that this is having a whole systems approach. Where what a shame if we've done loads and loads of work with the coach or with the performance analyst, and yet that young athlete in the academy walks down the corridor to go and train on the pitch and the dietitians had a word the director coaches had a word and the snc specialist has a word you know by the time they get out on, on the pitch to train they're, they're frazzled right. you know be, because they're, they're just overwhelmed with content and expert advice which has the delivery of that they've done a good job but the so what of that has an athlete that's less likely to perform so it does come back to having a, a joined up approach where there is a, a cohesive and, and you know common uh, culture that, that is more appreciative of what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Good managers achieve that. You know they, they achieve a culture of, of of excellence, but you know it's joined up. And you know MI, we can't assume that we deliver MI to pockets of it, and and it work. Um, it's probably reminds me of a, a term that I've heard Steve use before. Of you know that this is about lighting small fires. Mm. You know, and around an organisation, maybe our role is to light small fires around that that sports organisation, that franchise, whatever. Because in the franchises and the sports clubs that are ready for it, they'll come along and put petrol on. Mm-hmm. Those that aren't ready, they'll come and extinguish the flame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's that is no different, maybe to a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we perhaps need to be patient and appreciate that that's that's a fundamental part of of that mm-hmm. organisational mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the focus on systems was really interesting. And it, on the one hand, I, it, I find myself thinking that the world of sport is poses perhaps a higher, a greater challenge from a system standpoint, because maybe the historical culture is so different or the, you know, the win now pressures are so different. And those things are certainly accurate. I also find myself thinking here that maybe the culture is easier to shift in some ways than say a healthcare setting because healthcare practitioners can be spread out in so many different parts, either of a hospital itself, or maybe you have practitioners that aren't under the same roof. You have some, uh, you know, a, 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 G, a primary care doctor, a GP on one end of town and the psychologist is on the other end of town. And maybe there's some online resource that somebody's getting within the world of sport, because 
everything is so tightly managed, you have, you know, a, a football club in the Premier League in England, you know, they're going to want to control all aspects of what what that athlete encounters. And, and so while there's some challenges to that culture, you know, maybe it provides some opportunity to have everybody on board in a way that other other settings, uh, it would be much harder to do in other settings, I guess. I think that there is a real opportunity, Seb, of <clears throat> clearly it comes back to the point we made before of if we're going to deliver MI in, in this sporting environment, we, we need to make sure that we're delivering it as intended, you know, with high, as high fidelity as we can. Because let's hope that if it really lands well and it works for uh, Manchester City or Barcelona or, you know, um, so, I, you know, I can imagine that if something works, there are many, many teams looking over the fence, ready to copy what's worked. Mm. Um, you know, and, and sport, because it is very, very success-orientated and very results-orientated, they're always looking for that 1%. You know, we, we see that Team Sky, which is our uh, professional uh, cycling team, they've had a lot of success in the Tour de France in the last 10 years. Dave Brilsford, who is their lead, always talks about 1% gains. You know, and if that one percent is creating a more positive culture, then other teams will try and copy it tomorrow. You know, so that is the unique difference to a healthcare system, because of the money involved, because of their need for instant success, they will replicate whatever success looks like very, very quickly. So I guess what we're trying to do um, in the work we're publishing is to say, look, here, here are some ideas. It's not perfect, but here are the ideas as, as much as we know currently of how MI might fit within sport so that if it works, great, we know what to replicate. Um, what a shame that, you know, when we read so many published trials, I think Bill has reported over 850 published trials in MI and, and Bill himself has said, you know, we, we can't be sure with the majority of those, how many were actually delivering as intended. You know, so if we're, we're going to start to apply MI or consistent sport, then let's do it so that we know what was the active ingredient and what wasn't. Mm. You know, and then we can start to see the impact of MI on that culture change. Yeah, and it's an interesting idea that you're going to use the very nature of the individuals you're working with, which is their, comp their competitive nature to offer them something that brings them benefit and they're going to want it to help them on a competitive field. And again, it's about that idea that you're not, you're not precious about why they're going to do it. You're just content that they are. Maybe that's been the Achilles heel, Glenn, mm. you know, that, that we, we haven't understood enough about the process of change. Mm. You know, we haven't understood enough about the systems, the functions, you know, the motivational systems in play with athletes, we've just been bothered whether they change or not, right. you know, whether they perform or not, you know, and, and therefore perhaps the metrics have been wrong historically. I don't think that is any different to, you know, a healthcare system, you know, let, let's say something in drug and alcohol, as long as, you know, they they reduce or, you know, have abstinence, then we're happy with that. We've never put enough um, time and effort into understanding the processes so that, if things do go wrong, we, we understand what to go back and re-engineer with them. Mm. And, and therefore, with with athletes, we, we're just trying to have more helpful understanding with the athletes to have them become more autonomous, you know, to, to be resilient, to cope under pressure and to have skills to be able to manage setbacks better because they are inevitable, you know, and perhaps having those 
challenging but empathic conversations with them can you know i think we we all feel can be very useful so, so you 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 mentioned autonomy and resilience within the practitioners and the question that has been going around in my mind a couple of times you mentioned earlier on about chipping away at the culture and and the efforts of of introducing motivation interview and i suppose one of the, what i'm curious about is to what end is this been done what's wh- why are we doing motivation living what's what's the end goal what's what's our purpose in what we're doing or from a sports psychology perspective why do you think motivation living is needed in sport what's the goal um <clears throat> part of me wants to answer glenn if, if i had the answer to that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. I, i'm a very rich man i think the the purpose from all I can speak to is the way we're, we're approaching it. Mm. What we're seeing is uh, a dominance of psychological skills, training, a dominance of cognitive behavioral approaches that, that doesn't perhaps deliver it in a way that appreciates the patient, in this case, the athlete mm. as the person. Um, so what, what I think we see MI as being is a, is a really uh, high potential, powerful vehicle for delivering support, change, enhanced performance in that athlete in a way that's uh, more gentle, dare I say, you know, mm. and a lot more the human connection and, and collaboration partnership rather than an expert approach, which has been pretty judgmental, pretty brutal in terms of the culture, mm. um, and that reduces the, uh, the negative impact of, of elite sport, you know, which, which we're seeing a lot of. And I think there is a, an acceptance of of the being of the athlete being more prominent right. um, I think MI can be helpful in that regard what what we have to be clear on here is that if if it doesn't enhance performance then it, it isn't going to have any traction right. in elite sport right. so we have a challenge I think moving forward in terms of understanding hmm. what causal relationship is if you increase that therapeutic alliance and you increase that engagement does that then lead to an athlete more willing and more comfortable in change that then improves performance right. we can be as empathic and engaging as we like if that doesn't enhance performance we're never going to never going to get commissioned to do work with teams right. and athletes so it's almost like the well it's it's it sounds like on a macro level it's what bill describes as motivation is not just a constant style it's a way of being with people so part of what you're exploring in sports world is how can we be sports coaches using motivation to inform that and the, the micro of that is the skills and the approach and the spirit and by teaching those that that, that we treat people with in, in a different way ultimately as you're describing it as people who happen to be sports people um mm-hmm. so that that everything's kept in balance and that's the challenge not just in sports but also in health and social care and and probation and and life and relationships it's how do we treat each other as 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 we are rather than who, who we want you to be. And, and if, if we don't look after these typically young people better, mm. you know, that there are significant welfare issues here. Right. You right. know, and the well-being of these young athletes, these young people, um, is significant. You know, mm. there are real serious negatives. I guess the, the, the contrast or the rather the conflict that we have is that we're not going to be invited in to work with these athletes mm. these teams these support systems unless it enhances performance right you know so we are looking at both you know yeah. and yeah. i think it perhaps sometimes can be a on an easy balance between the two but we're clearly going in looking after the well-being of the athlete we don't know enough yet about that 
that relationship to their mm. performance. You know, we're assuming that because they feel better, they are, you know, that there is more engagement and, and empathy in, in the room, that they then will feel more able to, to perform. Um, and the culture will be more healthy. But, yeah. you know, we know there are pretty brutal cultures that actually have had success. Right. You know, but that's often short-lived. Right. You know, that's not a sustainable model. Um, that, that short, sharp, punishing relationship, you can only survive for so long in that, that context in, in elite sport. Um, so we're, we're trying to just open up people's ideas to a more sustainable model that has the athlete in the centre of it, that has well-being and, and a culture of, of empathy and engagement and, and well-being across the piece. You know, mm. that, that's really what I think is, is the, the potential for a mind sport. Yeah. And it's making me think, too, of another reason, perhaps, why this is really exciting times for people trying to implement a method like MI in the sports world. And at least in the U.S., I think there is a decreasing tolerance for those brutal um, team uh, contexts and 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 <clears throat> the coaching strat. Actually, it it just a few weeks ago we had the the NCAA college basketball tournament, which is something you know unique to the U.S. But arguably the most uh, important tournament that we have here. Sure. Um, and there was one of the most successful coaches, college coaches, Tom Izzo from Michigan State University, was shown on uh, at at a timeout on the TV really berating one of his players uh, in this public way. And it turned into, you know, hours and hours of uh, debate on, on television shows and on, on online and about, you know, did he go too far? And, um, you know, is this, you know, should, should we be coaching kids in this way? And then there was other side saying, Hey, Tom Izzo has been one of the most successful coaches of all time. And who, who are we to, judge him and actually his player the player responded who received the the berating and said this is why i came here you know mm-hmm. and, and so it's a really interesting mm-hmm. well it was the only yeah. reason but he was saying that's that's yeah. how coach Izzo is and and I'm, I'm i love being here and he's making me a better player but but there is this real questioning of you know how 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 far we how comfortable are we to to go in the directions where where coaches may have gone in the mm-hmm. past which were quite brutal and, and heavy-handed Although it reminds me, imagine. Sorry, sorry, it just made me think of what uh, Terry Moyer says about the, the the practitioners' interactions with with clients. Is that if the relationship is strong and well founded, that getting, as we would call here in Ireland, bollocked, getting a good bollocking now and again mm. is actually really useful. But if it's yeah. if it's if it's just what they're getting, it's not useful. So potentially, what happened was was that coach was seen doing one thing, but not in the context of who he is. And, and imagine, Glenn, just taking that point forward, imagine if that's the only skill you have in your toolbox. Yeah. yeah. You know, what well, once that stops working, where do you go there? Mm. You know, well, where do you go from there? And, and look, like you said with Terry's point and, you know, the others have, have expanded on, on that as well by saying, you know, this, you can get away with a lot if your intent mm. is clearly communicated and one of caring about the well-being of the person. You know, and if your intent is not clear in that that single mono, monochrome approach, then it, you're going to run. You know, you're going to run out of of luck sometimes. Being that that doesn't respond well to that, so that's a challenge. You know, and, and that 
if your model has been, if, if you've been an athlete that's become a coach, if that's the only way you've been exposed to, to learning, what else do you, do you do? You know, it takes a very intelligent coach to challenge that perspective. We have a, a great coach in the, the England soccer team now, Gareth Southgate, who at last is, is the kind of coach who's gone out. He's, he's observed the NFL, he's observed the NBA, he's talked to the coaches. He's just grown as a very intelligent guy. You know, he will berate the players when they need it, but you also get the sense that he's intelligent enough to have a plan B and C. You know, and he's thoughtful and he's intent and he's growing a very, very, within months, he created culture. You know, and, and I'm not saying that's MI, but I think, you know, I see a lot of similarities there in terms of appreciating, respecting the players that he's working with. You know, and, and that has shifted the culture in months. You know, this, this doesn't have to be taking years and years. You know, mm. change can happen pretty quickly. You've just got to be be very uh, thoughtful about what you are doing and why. Well, this has been wonderful, and uh, we we certainly have more directions to explore here. But we're going to need to transition a bit to to how we often wrap these episodes up. And uh, one of the things we like to ask our guests, Jeff, is to share some thoughts on a, a new project or an upcoming project that you're excited about, and it's. You know whether it's related to MI or not, really, but just mm. something that you're that's really got you excited about what's to come for you professionally. No, thanks. No, I appreciate the the opportunity to chat to you about this. Um, I think you know we can keep it really within within MI and sport. We've we've published uh, two three papers now with colleagues Rory Mark, Paula Halloran, um, Professor Joe Butt here at Shellam uh, at Sheffield Hallam. Um, and, and that's all around developing an MI in sport uh, approach and really around how we train those neophyte sports psychologists to build that therapeutic alliance. Um, I've also got to, to promote the, the work that John Fader has done over in New York. You know, and John is one of the co-authors in, in the book with us. You know, a real strong advocate for um, embedding MI in the, the elite sport world that, that he's worked as as a psychologist. So really, the, we have uh, that that's come together in the last few years as a, a textbook that's coming out towards the end of the year. So just in time for Christmas, everyone. Uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll hear more about that. Perfect uh, stocking filler. Um, and within that book, we, we're just trying to talk a, a lot more about this toolbox. You know, what what is the mindset? What are the methods? What are the skills? How do we deal with those challenging situations in a sporting context? So we're trying to move away from this generic one-size-all approach of MI to, to really building a context to it from elite sport. Um, you know, how do we connect? Steve used the term connecting rapidly, you know, because you haven't got the luxury of a one-hour session with an athlete, you know, like we might with a patient. So how do you connect rapidly? How do you have those, those corridor conversations with the athlete? Um, and then... Another theme with the book is around the field. You know, how do you improve their lifestyle, their well-being? Um, how do you build that unity and decision-making into the culture? So I hope within the text we're, we're covering a real broad set of, of areas that, that will um, really land and be of interest with, with both coaches and psychologists and parents, you know, and the athletes themselves. So uh, I hope it's the start of much more to come. You know, I, I know there is a group in, in Sweden that are doing a lot of work in MI coaching as well. You know, so I think that there is a, a real groundswell of, of interest in, in this area um, and, and so much more to come. You know, there, there needs to be a lot more exploration of its impact across these different domains. 
Yeah. Yeah, the, the book will certainly be exciting, uh, definitely an exciting addition to the series on Guilford, uh, Guilford Press or the Guilford Press puts out. Um, and we certainly look forward to that. Uh, Jeff, another thing I uh, would invite you to, to mention is for people in the uh, in the sports world that are interested in, in resources around motivational interviewing, sure. uh, maybe you could speak a bit to that. Um, yes, there, I think one thing we're, we're fairly early on in, in the journey that there are three or four papers on, on MI in sport. We provided a case study in, in one paper we've recently published, and that was Mac et al. Uh, building that therapeutic alliance, we used a case example drawn from a real uh, Australian soccer athlete that Paul O'Halloran supplied. Um, and beyond that, Again, we, we are looking to develop more audio and video examples of MI in elite sport. Um, there isn't much, I'll be honest, you know, and that, that is an area we're looking to do a lot more work in that. You know, I would really encourage others as well, you know, to, to start to build that repository and that, that resource. Um, because coaches need a variety of platforms, they need a number of different sources to go to just so they can see and get a hook into to their world so they can see, yeah, that, that's my world. You know, that's the kind of conversation I would have because it is still too big a stretch to see an addictions counselor working with, mm. you know, a cocaine user, mm. you know, so it's got to be context specific. We need to work harder towards that. And I know that there's been some early conversations, I think back in, in Berlin at the Minna Forum, where we started one of the first workshops in their mind sport. And then that was taken on again in, in Malahide. Um, and I think that that's great. That's a really good start. But you know, we're, we're ready. I think to to really create a uh, a wealth of resource to support uh, both the sports support teams and, and athletes themselves. And, and yourself specifically, Jeff. If people after hearing you today, they wanted to reach out to you, would that be something that you'd be willing to receive contact with them? And if if you were, what 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 way would you like them to contact you? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd really welcome that. So if they contact me by email, um, so j.brecken at shoe.ac.uk, uh, I hope that, that would be probably attached to the, uh, yeah. the text that uh, comes with the, the podcast. So feel, please feel free, um, get in touch with me. It's, it's a real passion, it's a real interest of, of mine, has been for a number of years. So if it's not something I can help with, I, I hope I will know someone that can, you mm. know, and I, I'm quite happy to uh, be a conduit to, to forward it on to others. Uh, and again, the, there is a, a real um, increasing group of people interested in this area uh, across different contexts. So I'm, I'm absolutely not in this domain. I'm just someone that's been done, doing it for a number of years. Mm. Uh, but I've come across a lot of people that are working, doing some really nice work in this area. So I'll be quite happy to, to forward that on to others. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for, for joining us and, uh, and shedding some light on this really uh, interesting and unique uh, world of, of MI and sport. Mm. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, guys. And can I just, just say it's a great resource that you pulled together. Uh, and I really um, appreciate the invitation to come and talk with you. So keep up the good work. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jeff. It was a really intriguing conversation. And, and as, as Jeff has given his email address, if there's any questions that, that you want us to pass through, again on the Twitter, it's at Change Talking. Facebook is Talking to Change. Email podcast at lenhines.com. Great. We welcome questions and feedback, ratings and reviews, uh, as always. So thanks for listening, everyone. Glenn, until next time. 
Take it easy, man. Thanks. Thanks, right. Jeff. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye, everybody. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big